My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have a degree in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagrids, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we'll analyze how to understand the errors of Western foreign policy making in the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, and Libya through neo-colonial and democratic biases. Because while Western societies have many strengths and significant weaknesses, in order to analyze these, we use the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. And as always, starting with housekeeping. Uh, this week, there's not a lot of housekeeping, so we just thought we, we, we would like to thank uh, the listeners on our behalf for the growing number um, and the wonderful reactions we have, re like we have been receiving. Uh, please keep them coming. We really enjoy them, especially for the questions of the week um, or, or any other comments and feedback you might have. Um, and this leads us already to question of the week. So we have received some comments about our episode 16 on the wealth uh, on the wealth gap, where some listeners remarked that we were too tough on capitalism and wealth creation, while others said that we weren't tough enough, um, Boulder. So are we the golden middle ground? So are we correct, or uh, how are we going to respond to that? Yeah. So that's 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 usually a little bit of a myth, right? That as long as you're in the middle then uh, everything is, is good and you've got it right, which I don't think is necessarily true. In this case, though, there are a few things that are useful to clarify. Um, there was a reaction to the words elegant capitalism. I called capitalism the most elegant system that we have in economic system. And of course, I stand by that in the sense that that doesn't, with that, I don't mean to say that everything about capitalism is great and that it doesn't have very dangerous side um, dangerous impact uh, potentially and and lots of side effects that we need to protect ourselves against obviously capitalism can have a horrible um, horrible outcome for many people what i mean to say by the word elegant is that it is a system that works by itself elegantly in the sense that with some government uh, intervention with some government control capital capitalism does its thing and it doesn't require a hammer from above to make decisions every time that something happens in economics and that is that is a wonderful wonderful thing to have right it's one of those problems that for example soviet soviet planners in the 20th century were struggling with how do we make sure that there are are enough goods in all the supermarkets? How do we um, set the price levels? How do we determine that? You need a huge bureaucratic apparatus to do that if you don't use capitalism. Capitalism does it automatically. They set prices automatically. They make sure that... Uh, capitalism makes sure that products arrive to the supermarket in time, most of the time. And there's a real elegance to that. So when, when people hear me say that it's the most elegant system, that's what I'm referring to. Not that it's all wonderful and that there's nothing wrong with capitalism. On the other hand, there are people who say, well, you're denying the fact that it's very important for people to have an incentive to work, to innovate. And if you're so comfortable with wealth distribution, you're taking away the the incentives, the reasons for people to actually start their own business or to work very hard at what they do. Well, obviously, I mean, that's why we say that we like capitalism, that at a very basic level, that's one of the good things about capitalism, that it incentivizes people. If you work hard and if you've got a good idea, you're going to be rewarded for that. And nobody wants to take away that reward. The question is, to what extent should you be rewarded? To what extent is it okay for you to flaunt your wealth? Um, to what extent is it okay for you to buy and buy uh, more houses, more cars, more luxury products while other people are struggling? So you should be rewarded, but the extent is important here. And, and a few myths that I think it's almost, it almost feels like too obvious to debunk, but it's still, it's still good to go through it. One of the things you hear a lot is that uh, people say, my background has nothing to do with my wealth. Um, so I, I got to where I am because of my personal input and all that. And it's got nothing to do with my background. Well, we know that this is not true. People become wealthy either, uh, most of the time at least, either because uh, they've got already a wealthy family 
and you know that helps a lot to inherit a lot of money or they become wealthy because they at least come from a middle class background where uh, they had good uh, education and good health care and those kinds of things or uh, they become wealthy because they've got the right network so there are lots of people without those things who have really good ideas but will never become Bill Gates or will never become Jeff Bezos because they just don't have that network around them does that mean that it's completely impossible for someone who starts with nothing to become very rich no of course not it's just statistically not very likely your background has a direct impact on your wealth um, and on your ability to generate money as an entrepreneur or as a CEO or uh, as a successful member of uh, economics, economic society, if you like. The other, the other myth is uh, people's or the other problem is people saying, I worked really hard for my money and I shouldn't have to give it away again. Well, that's very nice that you worked very hard, but if you're a millionaire and you say, I got to where I am through hard work, are you actually saying that those people who live in poverty, in abject poverty, are not working hard? So those people who work two jobs um, at a time, full-time jobs at a time to make ends meet, to make sure that their children have some food on the table. Are you telling me that they didn't work hard for it? No, of course, they also work hard. Working hard in itself is not a guarantee to become wealthy. If it were, then you might have a point, but we know that lots of people work throughout their lives incredibly long hours and they never get to even middle-class levels of um, financial stability. And, and then there's also the final myth that, I mean, it's almost too obvious, but people say, I am rich because I'm somehow better. I'm more intelligent, more creative, and therefore I have a right. Yeah, but you have become rich um, because you had the right circumstances around you. Maybe you were just lucky. Maybe you had the right network. Um, there are lots of intelligent people who will never make it. But more importantly, the only way for you to use your intelligence or use your creativity or use your hard work is to have a well-functioning society around you with good infrastructure, with a good legal system, with um, people who are educated enough to work for your company, people who are fat enough and healthy enough to work for your company. All those issues require a society that invests in the poorer and middle class uh, groups within the population. And that investment has to come from taxing the wealthy. That is, uh, otherwise, you, there's no way that you're going to be successful, however intelligent or creative you are, if you don't have any people who are capable of working for you because they're all ill at home or because they don't want to go down the street because there's no police enforcing basic law. You need a infrastructure around you to become successful and that requires money. Where does that money come from? From you sharing part of your income, not all of it, part of your income with the rest of society in recognition that you only became wealthy because of that society. Right, I, and I think that this answered the question of the week well. Um, again, we are open to, to any, more, any more feedback or comments on this. But now moving on to today's topic. What are the facts in two minutes? Because we're looking at the case studies of the DRC, South Sudan and Libya, we thought it would be helpful to provide a quick historical overview of those countries. Starting with the Democratic Republic of Congo, which we will be referring to as the DRC throughout this episode, the statehood history of the area we call the DRC today began around the 14th century with the kingdoms of the Congo, the Lunda, the Luba and the Kuba. The first interactions with the Western world took place in the late 15th century when Portuguese sailors arrived in the Kingdom of Congo. Belgian colonization of, the, of Congo began in 1885 when King Leopold II founded and ruled the Belgian Congo. Following unrest in June 1960, the country gained independence from Belgium and became Zaire in 1971. Then, following the ousting of Mobutu, the long-term dictator, in 1997, the country was renamed the Democratic Republic of Congo. Moving on to South Sudan, the youngest country on this list after it became sovereign in 2011. South Sudan was settled by many of its current ethnic groups during the 15th and 19th centuries. In 1820, the Sudan region was invaded by Muhammad Ali, leader of Egypt under the Ottoman Empire. By the end of the 19th century, Sudan was under British Egyptian rule and gained independence in 1956. Ever since independence, tensions and conflict between the North and the South have been frequent and often violent. 
Its independence in 2011 was opposed by the Sudanese government in Khartoum, but because of international pressure, the Republic of Sudan could not block the creation of a new country. Lastly, Libya. The history of Libya comprises six distinct uh, perspectives. Ancient Libya, the Roman era, the Islamic era, Ottoman rule, Italian rule, and the modern era. Prior to its independence in 1951, the territory comprising present-day Libya had been a semi-independent province of the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century, an Italian colony from 1912 until 1947, and was under British and French occupation from 1943 to 1951. In 1961, a young Muammar al-Gaddafi led a military coup against the king and took control of the country until his government was overthrown by rebels supported by NATO and specifically European countries. Moving on to our next category. What is the bubble? I think before we dive into these three separate uh, case studies, it is important to talk about neocolonialism itself. Yes, because the concept of neocolonialism uh, evokes a lot of emotions often in people. People have lots of different ideas of what we're actually talking about. There are issues such as racism associated to it. But I think in our case, since we're talking about the Western bubble and we want to look at how foreign policy gets affected in negative ways by neocolonial tendencies, I think we can sort of simplify it a little bit and just say it is a Neocolonialism is the way that European countries um, cannot detach themselves from their past colonies in a psychologically, if you like, healthy way. It is, it is a way for European countries to somehow still be patronizing towards their past colonies, feel that they are parental, feel that they are the ones who are sort of responsible for those uh, countries, but also need to guide them in probably a less than constructive direction, right? In, in, in many ways, neocolonialism is a little bit like someone coming into your house, um, a drug addict, addict who trashes, uh, trashes your house and assaults you and steals your money. Then after that, he goes into rehab. And rather than just simply paying your damages and moving on, starts lending you the money to repair your house conditional on painting the walls in the way that he likes it and, and buying the new furniture from his family business while still raving about what great taste levels he has, right? I mean, it's a little bit like that. So European countries messed up their colonies. They, they came in without any, you know, from a 21st century perspective, at least, without any moral justification, went into those countries claimed them as their own, messed them up, and then rather than leaving and perhaps paying some damages, they keep on interfering with those countries and keep on pretending that now, yes, they understand now that colonialism wasn't great, but now they're going to help them by, by dominating their politics, by, by, by guiding them because European colon uh, countries believe that they themselves have that magic formula um, that the world should copy from them. And that is, of course, incredibly damaging. And so, so after having looked at what neocolonialism is, uh, then let's move on to the case studies, uh, starting with uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC. Um, and maybe we should start with the process of decolonization uh, or basically of independence in the 1960s. Right. So the whole world in this time period was was uh, decolonizing. Um, uh, India had already gone down that path in 1950s. Um, the process started for African decolonization. And the Zaire at the time was, of course, a Belgian colony. And when it became independent in 1960, it actually had an elected leader who, through political struggles, managed to form a government. It wasn't an easy path. His name was Lumumba. Within a year, so that's happened in 1960, in, and he was relatively, relatively popular among uh, large parts of the Zarian population. Within one year, he was ousted from government. He was arrested and eventually executed with tacit support 
of Belgium, it's pre the previous colonizer, right? And this is a really good example of a country that says, okay, of a European country that says, now you're become independent. By the way, technically, to show how absurd this whole situation was, uh, Zaire wasn't actually a colony of Belgium. It was private property of its king, which is, you know, it's just a crazy world that we live in sometimes. Um, but uh, Belgium did not let go of... Zaire, when it became independent, it kept on continuing to interfere in its political struggles. What happened was that Lumbumba was deemed a little bit too left-wing, uh, too close potentially to communist tendencies, even though he himself always denied that. Um, the fear in Belgium and in the United States was that Zaire would turn com communist and become part of the Soviet sphere of influence. And so Europeans um, started interfering, make, ensuring uh, control over the country, which eventually then led to the rise of Mobutu, Seseko, uh, the dictator who would be a dictator until the 1990s. So already from the very start, Zaire, later DRC, became, when it became independent, it was still the victim of neocolonial control. Um, and that explains an awful lot of the instability that we have seen ever since. And so this, this dictator uh, came in through through the help of, of Belgium, and how did their relationship then develop over the basically the next 30 years? How did Belgium benefit from him, and how did he benefit from Belgium? So this was, this was a common... This was a common pattern in the Cold War, of course, that the West had no problems propping up dictators whenever those dictators were useful uh, in the fight against communism, in the fight against... You know, Latin America knows a lot about this as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to point out the hypocrisy here, and more than enough people have done it. We don't have to go on about it. But it, from a European or Western perspective, this is important to realize that we... Europeans supported someone like Mobutu um, with significant financial support, military support, all because of our geopolitical concerns. And that only changes the moment that the Cold War is over, the Soviet Union has fallen, and then, just like with someone like Saddam Hussein from Iraq, we start saying, oh, uh, you're a dictator, you know what, now we don't need you anymore, now we prefer your country to become a democracy. And then we expect that country to very quickly democratize, right? So over this time period, there was very little conversation within uh, Western governments. Uh, the, the time period before the 1990s was very little conversation about the political situation in the DRC, in Zaire, um, because it was not in our interest. Then in the 1990s, it turns to become, it turns out that the world is now free of the Soviet Union threat from a Western perspective, and all of a sudden we can start controlling the world through democratic means by saying, if you, we're, we're going to push for you to become a democracy. And then what led to the ousting of him in 1997? Well, this was basically the lack of... Uh, there's there's some very interesting similarities here with, with respect to, for example, Iraq, uh, which, of course, Saddam Hussein stayed in power nominally a little bit longer. But what, what happened was that, uh, of course... Zaire, in the, by the 1997, the DRC, um, was a country full of local tribal differences, uh, full of local interest groups that had no love at all for Mobutu. Mobutu had managed to stay in power because of Western support. That Western support dried up by the early 1990s because the Soviet threat disappeared. And... Um, local conflict and violence broke out, which eventually led to him having to go into exile. Um, so it the, the dictators of the 20th century were only there because the West propped them up, because the West supported them. The moment they stopped supporting them is the moment that local realities, uh, local unease, local instability led to those dictators being threatened. And so then he was ousted, and this, again, because I'm an international relations student, and I, I started my degree five years ago, this is one of the first jokes that a very naive 18 or 19-year-old will point out, is that, oh, yes, this country is called the Democratic Republic of Congo, just like it's uh, North Korea is, is democratic. 
Um, why are they called democratic if they if it doesn't seem like it will fit? Well, I mean, so on paper, the idea was to say goodbye to the old Zaire and to usher in a new new era, right? Democratic sounds good. Certainly keep in mind in the 1990s, democratic sounds very good because that's the moment, as we've discussed various times before, before the 1990s is the time that it seems as if the West has won history. They haven't, but it seems like it. And everyone wants to play that card. Everyone wants to pretend to be democratic, to be part of this new global Western era that is about to begin and that is supposed to last very long into the 21st century. And so putting the words democratic and also the word republic, by the way, um, into your name is 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 good marketing, right? It's it's useful and it puts puts attention on on you being a modern uh, nation ready for a Western-led future. Now, the problem, of course, is that after first a long time of um, being a colony, being the property of a European king, then Western supports a dictatorship for uh, well over 30 years. The idea that then from one day to the other, you become a democracy, even if you're completely happy with the concept of democracy, is of course insane, is surreal. There is no way that a country can turn democratic overnight. Why not? Because becoming a democracy is much more than holding elections. It's a slow structural process that requires respect for certain democratic institutions. European countries, depending on where you start counting, European countries took hundreds of years before they actually turned into the vibrant democracies of the late 20th century. Uh, arguably, um, for Britain, it started with the Magna Carta, you know, all the way under King John. The uh, Certainly, the, the start of democracy in countries such as Sweden and the Netherlands um, only becomes very visible in the 16th century and then still takes hundreds of years to actually develop into something real. France is called the Fifth Republic for a reason. Right, exactly. I mean, so the, and, and, and France had lots and of ups and downs, had revolution, had dictatorship under Napoleon, had all kinds of, you know, volatile moments before it could stabilize as the democracy that we know now. And then for us to go and say to the DRC, yeah, we know that we messed with you a little bit during colonization. And we know then we, we supported the dictator that we probably shouldn't have been supporting. But but now it's time for you to hold elections and be like us is, of course, a ridiculous notion. And so even if you believe that democracy is the path to go, there is no way that you can expect a country to develop that quickly its respect for institutions. So did it happen like this? Was it then in 1997 that the, the West came in and said, oh, I mean, you want to hold elections, we want you to hold elections, we believe this is a good idea, follow through with it. Exactly. So this became then the era of Laurent Kabila, the father of Joseph Kabila, who is still uh, alive today. Um, Laurent died, uh, I think, 2001. Um, his father uh, could be 2002. Um, but um, who essentially was not a dictator, just like his son. But that in itself is kind of logical for a country that is so incredibly complex. It is a huge nation with, um, if, if you look at the demographics of the DRC, uh, a lot of its population is centered around Kinshasa, all the way in the west. Then you've got an awful lot of rainforest with cities scattered through the country but that aren't easily connected to each other right because of the rainforest because of the jungle if you as i did when i worked there if you fly from um, let's say kinshasa to goma all the way in the east there are very few flights that actually go in that direction and you just fly over endless 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 trees there is very little infrastructure to keep the country together now good luck having from one day to the other elections in a country like that and having those elections respected and having proper tax collection uh, that then uh, flows money back into the coffers within Kinshasa, there is no way that you can practically do that. In fact, by just pretending that all you need is elections to have a democracy, what you're doing is you're causing more harm than good to that country because you're playing into the hands of tribal conflict. You're le it leads to 
social unease. It le- you you're basically ex- you're exposing the differences that exist within the country in often very destructive ways. So elections could actually harm any ambition that you have for long-term democratic movements. So this is what the past 25 years looked like. Exactly. Over and over again, the DRC being pressured into having elections with election monitors, uh, you know, people from the UN and elsewhere, then going in and then complaining about how the elections weren't completely fair and how... Um, uh, there, 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 there's corruption happening during the elections before and after, how people are being intimidated before and after the elections. But those elections are being held because of pressure from the West that only destabilizes the country, that then reinforces the dictatorship by someone like Kabila or by um, uh, his son, Joseph Kabila. And uh, very little actual progress is being made, while at the same time the country is torn apart by violence especially in the East, because keep in mind that the DRC is still the country with the largest UN peacekeeping force. 21 or 22,000 peacekeepers are stationed in the DRC because there is violence um, partially related to neighboring countries, to Rwanda, to Burundi in the past, Angola, uh, Uganda, and that uh, hasn't in any way been solved yet. That violence is still very much destabilizing the country. So in conclusion of this, then what is the neo-colonial aspect in the DRC? Well, so through our neo-colonial attitude of believing that it's our not just our responsibility, but also sort of our right to interfere with previous ex-colonies, uh, we keep on pushing for an agenda that does not fit the local realities. It we we are so obsessed with our own sense of democratic superiority and such a simplistic image of what the world looks like and and how democracy is supposed to work everywhere that we push for a counterproductive destructive agenda on the ground leading to continuous instability and it actually harms our own interests because what you see that um, China has become incredibly successful in offering an alternative to the DRC, even though over the past two years we've managed to get a president who's more Western-oriented again. We we are harming our own long-term interest by not engaging with local realities, but rather having some kind of grandiose global vision of us spreading our neo-colonial ideas around the world. So let's move on to South Sudan. And here, uh, I think it's interesting to start in the year 2004, 2005, when we really see the first time when talk about South Sudanese independence becomes at least a topic. In in geopolitical terms, yes. The, the idea of South Sudanese independence existed for way longer than that. There had been rebel groups fighting for that for a long time. But it never, it wasn't taken seriously by the international community until the early 21st century. And why, why is that? Uh, mostly uh, two reasons, but mostly because this is the post 9-11 period, uh, we're in the war on terror, and one of the countries on the naughty list, the one of the rogue states identified as um, a enabler of terrorism by the United States and Western European countries, is Sudan, the Republic of Sudan, under the then dictator Bashir. Uh, and we don't like Bashir very much in those days. So, I mean, he's gone now. Um, he's he's arrested. But um, uh, in those days, Bashir was the all-powerful dictator of Sudan. We wanted to minimize his power. And all of a sudden we thought, hang on, those independence movements that have existed, but we kind of ignored in South Sudan, maybe we can use them to um, take some power away from Khartoum, from the capital. And then this led to the 2009 referendum, right? Uh, right. Well, the in 2000, by 2009, the preparations were for a referendum. Eventually, it was held in 2011, straight before its own independence. Uh, but by 2008, nine, the it was clear that the referendum was going to be held. And there was a whole well-oiled machine in place to make sure that it would go well. And going well here means that the South Sudanese people would vote for independence. Now, keep in mind, and this is really interesting uh, to me, psychologically, culturally, that 
our neo-colonial relationship with southern Africa, if you like sub-Saharan Africa, is very different than our to our relationship with northern Africa. North Africa has the Arab North has always been a rival to Europe historically, right? Uh, the, depending on what area you look at, but of course it was part of the Roman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was seen as a threat to Western Europe. Um, there, the, the European history has been very closely linked to North African history and often were roughly the same. That's not the case with Southern Africa. Southern Africa has always seen as sort of a backyard of Western Europe, where certainly since colonization, that was never a threat to Western Europe, but that could be dominated, that could be controlled. And that creates a very different kind of relationship between those two parts. Now, what's the thing about the Republic of Sudan and South Sudan? That South Sudan forms part of that Southern African culture, just like the DRC that we just mentioned before. Whereas North Sudan is very much that Arab culture, right? And so what you see is that from a Western perspective, there's this thought process that if we can take Southern Sudan out of the equation, then those Arab rivals of ours are going to be weaker because they no longer control the natural resources of South Sudan. And it's not a problem for us because we can, of course, control South Sudan because it's part of our colonial backyard. And when we talk about the West, uh, what countries are kind of involved here in particular? Because so with the with the DRC, it was very clear it was the Belgians. But with uh, South Sudan, um, which European countries are at play here? Right. With, with the DRC, it was Belgium and the United States. The United States is always there, even though they weren't colonial overlords. That's the same here with Sudan. The United States uh, actively involved. Of course, Britain actively involved in this. Keep in mind that Sudan is a former British colony. And a lot of the suffering that um, the South Sudanese have gone through historically come from colonial days, right? Keep in mind that the South Sudanese have been oppressed quite significantly throughout history by the North, by Arab slave traders, for example, who would go raiding into uh, South Sudan to get slaves and to take them up North and elsewhere. Um South Sudan has a really rough history. Great Britain is largely responsible for that, the British Empire. And interestingly enough, uh, my country, the Netherlands, was heavily invested in um, the independence. Now, there are some, there are a variety of reasons for this, um, but the Netherlands spent, spent hundreds of millions of euros on the referendum and on South Sudanese independence, where hundreds of millions of euros for the Netherlands is quite a lot at a foreign policy level. Um, so it was it was a joint effort by the West as very much as part of the bubble of the war on terror to create this buffer zone, a Christian South that could play a part in keeping the Arab Islamic North out of Southern Africa and uh, weakening Bashir, who was perceived as an enemy of us. And in 2011, so South Sudan achieved independence. And as I read out in the fact sheet, so we've had here then opposition, I mean, obviously, from uh, the Sudanese government in Khartoum. And I, I simply read out there was international pressure. What did this international pressure look like? I mean, uh, was it just saying, oh, you know what, We're, we condemn the violence or what was happening here? Yes, it was uh, Sudan, not just because of the war on terror, but it was had been on the naughty list already because of Darfur. Keep in mind that. So Sudan was a very isolated country, and even its, if you like, its big brother, Egypt, uh, was under tremendous pressure to, um, to isolate Sudan further. Uh, in many ways, Egypt has always sort of been the, the, the guardian of, of, of Sudan in that sense, as the, the larger, stronger, more important country. And, and Egypt and other Arab countries were under incredible pressure to, to isolate them, but there was also a carrot being offered. So it wasn't just a stick. It was also saying, if you let South Sudan become independent, then we will ease some of the sanctions that are put on your regime. So it was very much like, if you do not cooperate with this, you're going to get into trouble. Uh, we might even... Uh, put military pressure on you because South Sudan have a, has a right to be independent. They've been clamoring for independence for decades. Now we take them seriously. If you do not let that happen, then we'll take action. But if you do let it happen, 
then there will be a arrangement made so that you can engage with the world uh, in a way that is not possible right now. Um, and that led, for example, to Khartoum getting a very beneficial oil deal um, after South Sudan became independent. South Sudan, South Sudan has significant oil. Uh, 50% of the revenues of that oil go to Sudan because South Sudan needs the is a landlocked country and needs the transport routes through Sudan, through the Republic of Sudan, to actually sell that oil to the world. So in order to compensate for that, they get 50% of South Sudanese oil. So, so the Republic of Sudan, even though they did not like their country being split up and their sovereignty being violated by the rest of the world, if you like, uh, at least they got something out of it. And how has... South Sudan in particular looked like since 2011. In one of our recap episodes, we already talked about um, the documentary Saving South Sudan. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, um, South Sudan in the last 11 years. Well, th this is exactly the reason why we're talking about this case. If, if it had been a success story with South Sudan becoming independent and becoming a thriving democracy, um, respecting human rights and um, happily engaging with the world community, then it wouldn't, you know, then we wouldn't worry about it. Unfortunately, the reality has been the exact opposite. First of all, the referendum in 2011 um, had 99.4% people voting in favor. Whenever there's a referendum or a vote that has anything like 99%, you should be skeptical, right? And of course, the reality was that it was a referendum was a complete setup that had been pushed for years and there was no way that uh, the South Sudanese had any, the, the population had any real understanding of the consequences of what they were voting for. South Sudan was dominated before and after the referendum by various groups, but specifically two large ethnicities, the Dinka and the Nuer, and they had a power-sharing arrangement put in place by a West focused on democracy, focused on a well-functioning government, saying, uh, Dinka, you can provide the precedent, and Nuer, you're going to provide the vice president, completely disregarding the fact that these are two groups that had been violently engaged with each other for decades now not just been fighting Khartoum for independence but that also between themselves had huge rivalry and a very bloody history um, with massacres in the 1990s that were still very much alive in the memories of those uh, involved in forming the newly independent country so the set setup was a country landlocked pushed that, that 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 got basically pushed into independence by the west that had no infrastructure to speak of extreme poverty one of the absolute poorest countries in the world um, in every measure conceivable that had rivaling groups that had a long history of animosity and violence against them that had a antagonistic neighbor to the north that really never wanted its independence in the first place they were now told Congratulations, your new country, make the best out of it. And of course, of course, and this was something that was obvious in 2007, 2008, when I was there, it was completely obvious to anyone who could open their eyes that this was going to turn into a disaster. And in it, it turning into a disaster, it did. Because ever since then, um, South Sudan has been incredibly unstable within 2013, 2014, horrific violence. Uh, thousands and thousands of people murdered between those two groups, between those two groups that were supposed to do a power-sharing exercise um, leading to a democratic regime. Now, the consequence of that is that uh, the people in South Sudan have been suffering ever since. Not that life was brilliant before, but life was definitely much worse after. Um, there is still no long-term pros prospect of a truly well-functioning democratic regime. And... Um, the Western countries that so eagerly supported South Sudanese independence, including the Netherlands, including the UK and including the United States, have basically withdrawn and said, well, you know what? We tried. We gave you independence. We, we organized the elections for you. That didn't work out. Now you are embroiled in a civil war. Um, tough luck. That's, that's your problem now. And that is, of course, a 
horrible interpretation of history. It wasn't the South Sudanese who chose this. It was the West who pushed for it and then left them to their own device. Okay, so with, with this harsh truth, um, and what is the neocolonial aspect in, in South Sudan? It is once again the West not at all being interested in local realities, instead being completely obsessed with this idea of democratization, not acknowledging, maybe not understanding, depending on who you ask, but certainly not acknowledging that you cannot simply create a democracy overnight, that that takes a very long time and holding elections is a really bad idea early on because it creates further and further tensions. And at the same time, using, controlling these local dynamics for your own geopolitical interests. And with this, uh, we're moving on to the third case study, the case study of Libya, and to, as I read out on the fact sheet, a young Muammar al-Gaddafi in 1961, who had a lot of ups and downs in his relationship with the West. Yeah, so Gaddafi was one of those dictators who didn't actually play the Western game, um, and who, especially in the 70s, under Brezhnev, became very close to the Soviet Union. He had a system, um, he, he started developing a sense of a, a Libyan system, uh, which was a combination of nationalism and some type of Marxism um, in, in, in a very Gaddafi kind of way that very much antagonized the West. And so unlike the Iranian Shah or unlike Sadat in Egypt or unlike Saddam Hussein in Iraq, um, Gaddafi was always viewed with certain suspicion by the West. But of course, during the Cold War, you had to be careful in alienating countries too much because this was still very much a fight of ideology and you don't want to uh, push that too far. Until, of course, in the 1980s, 88 Lockerbie bombings, when... Um, uh, Libya was responsible for the bombing of an airliner over Scotland with the deaths of hundreds of uh, civilians. And at that moment, Gaddafi was really put in the naughty corner and was, was isolated from the West. And unfortunately for him, this was also the time that the Soviet Union collapsed. So he became isolated in the 1990s uh, because he no longer had any natural allies to count on. But then... In this very, you know, weird world called international relations, 9-11 um, happens. And you could say many things about Gaddafi, but not that he, that he was a fan of Al-Qaeda or that he was a fan of these kinds of anti-Western movements that he didn't control, these terrorist movements. And as a result, the West felt that it was strategically useful after 9-11 to start embracing Gaddafi. So all was forgiven about Lockerbie. Um, he went on a whole tour throughout Europe in which he put up his big tents because he didn't want to sleep in hotels. Uh, big tent in Paris, and he went to London, and he went to Madrid. Uh, and it was just a sight to behold, right? With Gaddafi, with all the respect, being the weirdo that he was, uh, playing his game. And Western leaders tolerating that, despite all these decades of antagonism towards him. But he was a necessary ally to fight the global war on terror. Notice this pattern of the global war on terror and how much destruction it has caused, by the way, in Western uh, political thinking, geopolitical thinking. So things are looking up. The problem that the West starts perceiving um, as time goes by is, first of all, that terrorism becomes less of a uh, concern by 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. Anyone with a reasonable understanding of international politics understands that the war on terror was a horrible project, horribly overblown, with terrible consequences such as the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq, and people were moving on from there. But secondly, Gaddafi, very consistent with his personality for decades now, um, is talking about pan-Africanism. He's talking about using all the Libyan oil that he happily sells on the global market to support a pan-African, anti-imperialist, as he calls it, anti-Western project. And not only that, he starts getting very close to Beijing. China on the rise and starting to become a rival, replacing the Soviet Union as a major threat to Western interests, is starting to sign lots of, uh, starts signing lots of contracts with Gaddafi and Libyan oil uh, producers. And that becomes a problem. So now the West reverts back 
to its traditional outlook on Gaddafi. They remember that he wasn't a nice guy from their perspective to begin with. They remember that he's anti-Western. They remember that he's a dictator. All of a sudden, they remember Lockerbie again. And um, things turn sour around 2009-2010. And then at some point, uh, you have the Sunisia and uh, basically spreading all over Northern Africa and parts of the Middle East. Um, and it also there are also some protests, some uprisings in Libya. Yeah, that's not something new. So there have been there ha there have been rebel groups. There had been rebel groups in Libya for quite a while. Um, with but the Arab Spring creates a new impetus. Impetus. It's the West, by the way. We should do a case study on that at some point in the future as well. How the Arab Spring happens and the West, in its own bubble believes that this is the beginning of a Western, new Western era for the Arab world. Uh, the idea that Egypt, Tunisia and Libya all are going to rise up in celebration of Western values, become fully fledged democracies, etc., etc. Of which very little is left if we look at it now, obviously. Uh, media believes in it. There's a huge hype in 2011 in, in the West about this. NGOs start supporting civil society across the Arab world, all believing that this is the moment that the Arab people unshackle themselves from the dictatorships that have been holding them back. By the way, dictatorships that had been put in place by Western powers during the Cold War, but okay. Um, during that celebration, that freedom rave, if you like, uh, there, there is a concern that even though the rebels in Libya are fighting Gaddafi, that they will not actually manage to be successful, that Gaddafi is too strong at a national level. And so the West, unlike what happened in Tunisia or elsewhere, starts, starts actually actively supporting the rebels, starts actively undermining the regime with weapon transfers, with intelligence agencies, and eventually with creating a no-fly zone uh, with Western aeroplanes um, from uh, NATO, uh, US-supported uh, Italy, the United Kingdom and France actively getting involved in the conflict in Libya and overthrowing the Gaddafi regime. Again, uh, this was completely a geopolitical, ge uh, geopolitically motivated project it was out of concern for Gaddafi uh, becoming too pan-Africanist, becoming too influential within the African Union and becoming too close to China, becoming too close to Beijing. But the difference is that this is actual military intervention, military intervention that gets supported by parliaments all across the West, all across Europe and North America. And not just any parliament uh, support, but parliament support from groups that shouldn't be supporting any type of military intervention, right? And it was the, the moment that I completely disconnected from anything that, for example, the, in the Netherlands, the Green Party had to say, because the Green Party um, in, in Dutch Groen Links was a party that, had, that comes from pacifist roots, that comes from the idea that we should not use neocolonial militarist intervention. They, even they, supported the overthrow of Gaddafi. And just to show how deeply ingrained this bubble is, the, the, the formal narrative, Gaddafi is an evil dictator, we need to get rid of him. The real geopolitical interests are very different than that because we're happy to leave dictators in place in Saudi Arabia, which are probably much worse for their own local population than Gaddafi ever was. Mm. And talking about the, the own local populations, so then uh, Gaddafi is, well, killed in 2011. Um, and since then, the country has been, what do we call it, instable at best? Once once again, I mean, it is, it is shocking that if you have these three countries, the DRC, South Sudan and Libya, that the DRC is actually the least violent of the three. And if anyone ha knows anything about the DRC... It's, an, it's a place with a lot of local violence permanently occurring. Libya turned, uh, fell into long-term civil war for a very short time period after Gaddafi IV, and I'm talking about, what is it, six months or so, 
the West pretended that there was a stable government uh, of the rebels that could now create once again a thriving Western democracy in Libya. Of course, that didn't go well. Since then, Libya is embroiled in civil war with moments of relative stability, um, but just like South Sudan, without any clear long-term solutions. Once again, a project pushed for by the West that leads to incredible local hardship, lots of local violence, without any clear plan of what's next, and the West withdrawing responsibility. Now in 2022, barely 10 years after um, after the West overthrew the regime with military intervention, the West doesn't care anymore. The West has moved on. Um, the long-term consequences of that are obvious, obviously negative for the West as well. So it's, it's myopic policymaking, it's short-termism to the extreme. Um, and nobody acknowledges the incredible failure that's, that's, that this intervention actually was. So in conclusion, what are the neo-colonial aspects here? Once again, you see a West that is that 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 operates under a weird sense of on the one hand, we've got geopolitical interests and we're gonna push for those interests, and on the other hand, justifying legitimizing legitimizing its actions to defend those interests by living in this Western bubble, by believing that whatever they do is sort of on the right side of history, on the right side of morality, because they are democratic. And all they want is a free, democratic, peaceful world. The fact that those beautiful ideals only cover our cloak over all kinds of other interests that Western companies and Western organizations and Western governments have is completely ignored. And uh, the fact that it leads to long-term suffering and human uh, abuses, if you like human rights abuses, in the countries that we're talking about, is then being dismissed under the neo-colonial attitude of, well, that's the backwardness of those colonies. That's the backwardness of those regions that don't know yet how to be civilized like us. I mean, we're already talking about uh, the damages and the problems here, so I think it only makes sense to move on to the next category. What is the problem? And I think that... Uh, like after after I mean listening to all of this and after talking about all of this, you have an incredibly destructive policy, foreign policy of the West, that it does not seem like it is helping Western countries at all keep like I mean reach their goals, which is maintaining some form of influence. That is exactly right. So every listener hopefully will agree that creating, pushing for a civil war, even if it was unintentional. But being responsible for civil war in South Sudan, being responsible for violence in the DRC and civil war in Libya is a bad thing, is morally reprehensible. And if you then, as a Western country, walk away from that and act as if it wasn't your fault, that's even worse. However, having conversations about morality is always tricky because morality is a vague concept. It depends on your angle. It depends on your interpretation. But what we can absolutely for sure say is that the West shoots itself in the foot even at a pure geopolitical level. It doesn't help itself with this bubble thinking. It doesn't help to believe that countries can automatically turn democratic because, as we've said before in these uh, episodes, the West's best chance to actually defend its interest in the 21st century from a very narrow, selfish perspective, not taking into account the plight of local populations elsewhere, is to be genuinely a force for goods. To say, look, we are doing well in our own countries. We behave morally internally towards our own populations. We are eradicating poverty internally. Uh, and we are lending out, uh, we are ha happy to cooperate with anyone who wants to cooperate with us? And we want to be a force for good in the world without imposing our ideology. That is the best shot that the West has at actually still being relevant 20, 30, 40 years from now. 
Instead, what they do is they show their destructive sides and the rest of the world looks at the West and says, well, you go on about Russia being evil in Ukraine or you go on about China, but I've never seen China invade another country. And yes, Russia has invaded Ukraine and they shouldn't, but how about Iraq? How about Libya? How about South Sudan? How about all the incredible violence that you're responsible for? And the weirdness, he, the, the weird thing here is that ask any well, most pe people walking down the streets of Amsterdam or Berlin or Paris or London, and they generally think of their own country as a peaceful country. But the West is the most destructive, violent force in pure numbers, pure statistics over the past 50 years. Way more destructive than Russia and way more destructive than China. Um, that is not from a Western selfish perspective that is not sustainable. Because if I if I summarize all the damages that we've already listed throughout the episode, so we see that the DRC is now in Chinese hands. There's no instability. Uh, there's no stability to be seen anytime soon. Uh, with one with one caveat there that for the past two years, the government in Kinshasa has moved a little bit away from China, but but oh, in the China has definitely stabilized in the DRC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then, uh, then we then we've seen uh, South Sudan, where uh, we are witnessing a civil war, and the West has completely withdrawn. And it also seems like the Chinese are coming in there um, soon. Right. So China is benefiting from this, and whenever China puts forward this narrative, which is of course also marketing its strategy. Uh, when they say we are respecting the world order, we respect the United Nations, unlike those Western countries that violate UN resolutions, which, by the way, they do. We, the Chinese, um, have never invaded a country. We do not create civil wars elsewhere. Follow our model. Follow us. We have lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in our own country. We're going to continue doing that. Um, the West is seeing an increase in income inequality in its own uh, societies. China has a very convincing narrative and the West can only, if you like, fight that narrative, which they need to if they want to stay influential and powerful in the next 50, 60 years, by actually starting to do the right thing rather than being led by their own delusions of grandeur and their own obsession with their own democratic models. And finally, we see that Libya is also experiencing periods of civil war and causing instability for the entire region where and becoming slowly but surely a, a battleground for Turkey and the UAE uh, fighting over the influence of political Islam. Yeah, at, 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 if you look at it at state level, that's exactly what's happening. At the same time, it bears remembering, uh, history has a lot of interesting lessons to learn from us, that Al-Qaeda was the product of the Mujahideen, who were fighters in Afghanistan, Afghanistan against the Soviet Union, uh, who were sponsored by the West and the CIA. So what we're doing here is we are creating certain groups that fighting other groups at the local level that in the long term might very well turn against the West itself. So in, in, in Libya, all those groups that were supported by the West that, that, that worked to overthrow Gaddafi and afterwards, they are not long-term allies from a Western perspective. They are not people who in the long term are going to benefit Western geopolitics. The West keeps on thinking that it can control groups, that it can control local dynamics. And somehow they keep on thinking that somehow they will be proven right throughout history because they are supposedly free and democratic, which is just a complete misreading of reality. Instead, what you see is more and more people turning away from Western thinking, more and more people being outraged by the destruction being caused. And this is already basically the last category. What now? And yeah, just just to summarize and include this episode, so so what now, Walder? Hold out, hold an open hand to those you think you can work with without imposing your neo-colonial or your democratic values on others. If the West doesn't make that choice, doesn't make the choice to change its attitude towards the rest of the world, regardless of what happens with China, at some point the West is going to wake up and notice that nobody cares about them anymore that they are just one other group of nations as there are many other nations and they have lost any ability to actually take humanity into any kind of positive direction. And I say that with pain in my heart because as we've stated over and over again in this podcast series, as far as I 
I am aware liberal democracy at its core is still the best model that we have discovered so far, or at least the least worst, to sort of paraphrase Churchill. Um, it's not brilliant, but I think that a lot of people could benefit elsewhere in the world from liberal democracy. But the West is doing a terrible, terrible job because they are so obsessed with their own um, moral superiority. And this seems like a great moment to end today's conversation on the errors of Western foreign policy making in the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan and Libya through neo-colonial and democratic biases. If you have any questions, comments or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next week when we burst the Western bubble. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? I chose a quote from uh, Patrice Lumumba, the person we mentioned before, who was the first democratically elected and, you know, arguably the last democratically elected leader of uh, Zaire, the DRC, in 1960, who was later in 1961 imprisoned and executed with help from Western forces. And from prison, he wrote to his wife, The day will come when history will speak but it will not be the history which will be told in Brussels, Paris, Washington, or the United Nations. Africa will write its own history, and in both North and South, it will be a history of glory and dignity.